I saw the Lord always before me, the psalmist says. He is at my right hand. I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. And my flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or will you let your Holy One see decay? You have made known to me the path of life. And you make me full of gladness with your presence. Amen. Church family, graveyards remind us of the brevity of life. But I am here today to remind us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ absolutely guarantees the brevity of death. Graveyards are hard spaces for faith. Unless he who rose from his own grave lives within you and those lives whose bodies are laid to rest. And not just those graveyards, but any place in this broken world in which we stare the enemy face to face. In which we see with the naked human eye loss, heartache, and defeat. And it's in those places that the naked eye must be clothed with these words from Jesus Christ himself, who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Amen. Well, then, if you have your Bibles, I would like you to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The title of our message this morning is The Resurrection of Jesus Christ is Everything. Say that with me. The Resurrection of Jesus Christ is Everything. And these verses tell us why. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, even though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Why do you think the Apostle Paul would need to remind the Corinthians of the gospel he preached to them? After all, it was Paul, the great apostle. Uh, who, Who would forget anything from the Apostle Paul? I mean, I can understand us forgetting many things from the Oki Randy. But this is the Apostle Paul. Yet here we are. And actually, verse 1 is a mild rebuke. As if Paul says, I would like to reiterate what has obviously escaped your attention. Some of the Corinthians have contracted doctrinal amnesia. Yeah, they claim that there's no such thing as a bodily resurrection. Oh, it's not that they didn't believe in the afterlife. It's that they could not conceive of of an afterlife with bodies. I mean, their culture... Remember, Corinth was only about 50 miles from Athens, the epicenter of Greek philosophy and thought. Their culture had taught them that the body was one kind of matter and the soul another kind of matter. And from their point of view, the culture said that that body matter imprisoned soul matter and death was the great Greek parole officer. Therefore, death was to be welcomed. Death set the soul free. Death liberated the soul like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption who crawled through that 500-yard sewer line and then splashed out into the stream. He tore off his shirt in the pouring rain with lightning. That's what happens at death. The soul is finally free. To Athens, the empty tomb was just kind of a curious oddity. To which the great apostle Paul said, curious oddity? Well, that's about the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Death is no parole officer. Death is a curse. Death is an enemy. Death is the last enemy. Your doctrinal amnesia of the gospel, O Corinthians, is the worst of the many problems that have occupied this letter. And so what it, in what is the longest chapter of the New Testament, which sadly we will not be able to go through every verse today. But the month is young. <laughs> but this is the longest sustained discussion of, of 
any topic in the New Testament. And why wouldn't it be? You see, Paul contends that the gospel of Christ's resurrection is everything, everything. I mean, he even says so in, chat, in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are to be pitied most of all people. It's all or nothing, Paul says. Now, now, why would Paul make this all or nothing claim? It's everything, church family, because of what the gospel is. And that's what I want to reiterate for us this morning. The gospel is proclamation. The gospel is salvation. The gospel is transformation. The gospel is the revolutionary proclamation of Christ-caused salvation, which brings grace-fueled transformation. That's the gospel. Walk with me here. Paul says that the gospel is revolutionary proclamation. Verse 1, Paul says, Paul says, I reiterate to you literally the gospel which I gospeled. So the gospel is the subject of its own verb. The, the word gospel was not originally a, a religious term. It's not originally a church term. It's a military term. Euangelion. It means news of victory. The apostolic messenger appears to the city. This was before email. The apostolic messenger appears to the city, having run to the city. His face is glistening. On his head is a laurel wreath. He swings a branch of palms. His appearance betrays the good news he bears. And he raises his right hand in greeting and shouts in a loud voice, Hail! We won! And joy floods the city. Gospel words do things. Gospel words change circumstances. And the gospel, Paul gospeled, announces the invasion from heaven of a conquering Messiah who has made war against our fiercest enemy, and this king has won. When someone asks you at its core, what is the gospel? It's, it's, well, it's not enough to say, well, it's a religion. Well, yes, it's more. It's not enough to say, well, it's, a, it's the teaching of Jesus. Well, yes, it involves that, but it's more. But listen, the gospel is more than the apostles traveling from town to town, re-preaching the Sermon on the Mount. The gospel is not the communication of religious curriculum. It is a revolutionary proclamation. The gospel is not a spiritual syllabus for church education. The gospel is world-shattering declaration. The gospel's not good advice. It's good news. 
And the gospel which the Corinthians received does something. It does something. What does Paul say? It enables you to stand. Verse 1, in which you stand. The gospel is bedrock upon which to build your life. It is sturdy. It is immovable. It is incorruptible. When the currents of our culture threaten to sweep us away, the gospel is the one fixed anchor point. When disease rushes over you like wildfire, this gospel is incombustible. When political waves threaten to overwhelm us, this gospel is unsinkable. When ethnic strife threatens a nation, this gospel speaks of an everlasting kingdom of every tongue and tribe and nation. And when you feel the crush of news you don't want to hear, it's cancer. It's a heart attack. It's inoperable. This gospel promises life everlasting. The gospel steadies us in storms of sickness, storms of political instability, storms of economic uncertainty, storms of unemployment, and storms of fatigue. And why? Because it's good news, not good advice. And this gospel, Paul says, which you received... And you believed, past tense, is the gospel by which you are being saved, present tense. So, so the gospel's not a train ticket to eternal life to be purchased and then tucked away in my Bible so that I can need it some, someday out there in the future. Now I can get on with whatever else is on my checklist. No. The gospel is about a powerful, living king at work in us, rescuing us moment by moment, day by day, from the kind of doctrinal amnesia, eternity amnesia, and identity amnesia that our culture inflicts upon us relentlessly. Every day, every day, this king is producing supernatural character traits like love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He is saving us. He is saving me from selfishness. He's saving me from self-centeredness. He's saving me from me. The gospel that saves is the one by which Jesus becomes larger and larger and I become smaller and smaller and that's a good thing. There's a new sheriff in town, the gospel proclaims. And he's making everything new. But how does he do that? I mean, what, what, kind, what kind of proclamation can produce that? We'll keep reading. Because you see, the gospel is a revolutionary proclamation of Christ-caused salvation. Verse 3, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul is giving us creedal language here. 
What Paul says the gospel is goes back to the very beginning. Scholars tell us that this is the earliest creed of Christianity. Just these few verses here. The earliest creed of Christianity, the earliest recitation that our spiritual ancestors uh, gave uh, just a few years after the resurrection. I mean, this, so this is before the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This was before there was a New Testament. This was before the apostles began to write letters. There was the gospel. And what is this gospel? What does Paul say? Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ appeared. That's the gospel. This this creed is saturated in the supremacy of Christ. For Christ is the subject of every verb. Notice Paul does not say they killed him and they buried him, and they claimed to have seen him. That's not what Paul says. Rather, Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ appeared. And Paul doesn't say Jesus purposely. He uses the royal title, Christos. Jesus' regal and messianic rank in every other kingdom. The people fight and die for their king. But the gospel proclaims the one true king who fights and dies and is raised for his people. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the the language of substitution. Christ absorbed the penalty of my insurrection against God So that having the forgiveness of sins, I can enjoy God's company. Listen to me. Our Father God is not just interesting and not just interested in in, in, forgiving you of your sins and then saying, now go run along. He's our Father. Our sins are forgiven so that there's no awkwardness between our father and his children. My sins are forgiven so that I can savor him without having to repeat, I'm sorry for what I did. No, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm really sorry over and over again. Listen to me. King Jesus removes not just the sin but the guilt so that I can enjoy God. Savor him. He died. He was buried. Now why would Paul say that? It's because the tomb of Christ is the linchpin of his death and resurrection. The occupied tomb on Friday assures us that Christ in fact had died. While the empty tomb on Sunday assures us that in fact he was raised. He was raised. And there is no gospel apart from Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. My beloved, salvation does not come merely through Christ's sinless life. And salvation does not come through merely even his sacrificial death. Rather, through his bodily resurrection, which indisputably attests to both. 
On the third day, Christ was raised. Not his teaching, not his spirit, not abstract love, but his body. Are we really expected to believe that the apostles went careering about the Mediterranean, suffering and at last succumbing to brutal deaths over the idea of him still being alive? Paul says, I think not, for he was raised. The creed's radical claim was that Christ's body became a transformed, what one scholar puts, transphysical body. Uh, the resurrected body of Christ. Well, well, it was Jesus, but, but it wasn't. I mean, he, I mean, he could eat, and he, he had flesh and bones, and he could speak and cook and touch and be touched, and yet he could appear and disappear. He could keep others from recognizing him. And, and Paul rehearses the witnesses in these verses who encountered the transphysical Christ, beginning with Peter, and then the 12, and then over 500 at one time. Paul says, most of whom are still alive. And then James, Jesus' own brother, James, who later gives us the letter of James in the New Testament. And then the apostles. Why this list? Well, it's as if Paul says, go ask them. They will tell you. You see, Jesus wasn't the only one in the first century who claimed to be a Messiah. I, I, I could point out a dozen in the first century. And, and Rome had a very efficient way of thinning the Messianic herd. It was called crucifixion. And when they hoisted a would-be Messiah up on the cross, their followers did either one of two things. They either went back home and lived by Rome's rules or they found another Messiah. And Jesus' followers did neither. <laughs> they kept preaching. They kept teaching. They kept meeting. They kept sharing the news. They kept worshiping. They kept praying. They kept giving. They kept sharing. They kept loving. They kept encouraging. They kept doing all of these things as if he was still alive. Christ had changed their lives. And he still does. The gospel. The, the revolutionary proclamation of Christ-caused salvation, which brings grace-fueled transformation. Verse 8, Paul says, Last of all, as to one untimely born... That's the word ektroma, ektroma. It refers to a birth that violates the normal period of gestation, either by miscarriage or abortion. That's right. Paul calls himself the abortion apostle. In fact, he was throwing the term back at them. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, that some of the Corinthians who were so consumed with appearances, they actually mocked 
Paul's appearance. And so Paul uses their own term. Some of you think I'm a freak. Some of you think I'm a, a monster. Some of you think I'm an abortion. And Paul says, you know what? You're right. Verse 9, I am the least of all the apostles. Incompetent to be an apostle. Incompetent. Because I persecuted the church of God. So the least likely convert became Christ's elect instrument. So Paul says, you can call me whatever you want to call me. I am what I am by the grace of God. God's grace is my fuel. And that fuel has carried me to more cities in the empire than any other apostle. But it wasn't even, but not I, Paul says, the grace of God with me. Church family, grace is nothing less than Jesus Christ. And, and grace doesn't tiptoe around mud puddles in its shiny new shoes. Instead, grace slogs ankle deep through the stinking muck to rescue poor souls who have face planted themselves in the rotten mud of sin. Grace doesn't hire private investigators to sniff out the backstories of potential recipients to make sure there is no impropriety that might embarrass the crown. Instead, grace tramples through the alleys and the divorce courts and the rehabs and the prisons to press into unworthy hands an invitation to live free under God's roof. Grace doesn't sit cross-armed behind its desk and frown at your darkest secret. Instead, grace wraps its arms around your quaking body and lets your tears drench its shoulders as it whispers, I love you, I forgive you, you are mine. Grace doesn't know the difference between a shack and a mansion. Grace doesn't give a rip if you're a high school dropout or a Ph.D., a felon or a cop, a virgin or a porn star. We're all equally condemned by the law of God and we're sentenced to a prison of death for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet there stands grace outside an empty tomb. He laughs and he yells, hail, victory, I won. Grace is the God who was born in a barn, swaddled in rags, in the cold darkness of a world too lost to know it needed finding. And grace was crucified on that pulpit of death, preaching love to the world, declaring that in him there is forgiveness for all who believe. For the joy set before grace, grace endured the cross. And on that first Easter morning, grace got up. The stone was rolled away. Not to let grace out, but to let us in and see so that we could see and believe. Grace reigns triumphant in the scarred and resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And that grace is for you. Jesus Christ, the grace of God, will hold you fast if you believe. This is the gospel, church. It is not to be improved upon, it is tried and true. 
It is the revolutionary proclamation of Christ's cause salvation that brings grace-fueled transformation. I am what I am by the grace of God. And so are you. This is the gospel Paul received. And this is the gospel that was handed down to the Corinthians. <laughs> and even with all their drama, they handed it down to us. <laughs> For we have their letter. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ appeared. If you receive this and believe this and hold fast to this, you will stand. Because he will cause you to stand. Because you do not stand on the grave of a famous deceased Hebrew rabbi. You stand on the life of a living, reigning, resurrected, embodied king.